You may be seated as we continue in worship. And God designed his church to be a place that we would worship him. And part of that's by remembering him. I want to invite the host team to come down and pass out the elements, the bread and the wine. In our passage in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is going to say, My house, my father's house, meaning the temple, was designed to be a place of prayer. And Jesus didn't just talk about prayer in a theoretical way. Prayer isn't something ritualistic or religious. It can be really raw and real. It's actually on the cross we get to see what prayer looks like. It's a lot of interesting prayers that Jesus prays on the cross. One prayer. He looks up to God and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's prayer? It is. It's when you feel like God's not doing what God should do. You feel alone in your struggles. And God longs to hear those kind of prayers because he prayed them. Sometimes prayer is a time of looking to God and telling him what you need. I thirst. I thirst for you, Father. Sometimes prayer is a time of surrender. And maybe this morning during communion, as you hold the cup and hold the bread, you want to surrender something. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, my marriage, my family, my children, my need to control. But whatever communion is, it is for sure a time of remembering forgiveness. And Jesus prayed that on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was talking to the Romans, but also talking to you and I. Because you and I have been forgiven of what we've done wrong, we can forgive those who've trespassed against us. So as we look to the cross, we see a man who knew how to pray. We see a God who knew how to pray. So as we sing the song together, maybe you want to just meditate in your own heart and surrender or forgive. Maybe you want to sing together about the one who died and prays for us. We'll sing together. Even now, the New Testament tells us that Jesus continues to pray for us, to intercede on our behalf. Because on that Passover with his disciples, he showed them how to pray at the Passover by saying, this is my body that will be broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup. So this is the new covenant of my blood. Your fear is covered. Your shame is covered. Your guilt is covered. We will drink the final cup when we drink together in paradise. But for the cup of redemption, let's partake together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your gift of forgiveness. We thank you for your gift of love. We thank you for your demonstration of what it looks like to pray, to be our daily bread, to be everything we need. And Father, we ask that you would give us deeper moments of prayer where we connect our soul to your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in Luke chapter 19. As we do that, one of the things I've been trying to help us look at is understanding how all these passages and parables and teachings are all connected together. So I want to again back up just a hair to remind you where we've been. We've been in a large series of chapters about the kingdom of God and how that impacts our finances, how it impacts our life. 
And where we've been so far is that at Good Friday, we had cult owners gave their stuff to Jesus, their cult, so they could advance the kingdom and hold him up. Then last week, the Pharisees came to him and didn't like the fact that people were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus said to them, listen, they've surrendered themselves to my kingdom. They're recognizing the kingdom in front of them. And if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. If you're with us, we backtrack that phrase in the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, that phrase, the stones cry out, was actually a slam against the religious leaders, saying, whoa, you give woeful counsel. You're not obsessed with God's kingdom or God's house. You're obsessed with greed and money yourself. And because you're such bad leaders, the stones will cry out. So that's pretty significant, right? That this whole idea that... that they, Jesus, in this little phrase, the stones will cry, was really smacking and getting attention to these folks as well. And that becomes a hinge as he moves into this next portion we're in, which is here in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. Pretty famous passage about Jesus cleansing the temple of those who are misusing money. This is the famous money changer scene. In fact, let me give you the specific thing Jesus says. Jesus saying to them, it is written... Which means Jesus, as always, is quoting from the Old Testament. We get to find out where. He's written, My house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. As I have heard messages on this passage over the year, I've heard, number one, this is why God is not a capitalist, he's a socialist, because God doesn't like money. I've heard a sermon on that from this passage. In fact, when I wrote my book, Godonomics, sort of building a biblical case for free enterprise, I can't tell you how many people underneath the comments in my Amazon comments or in the radio interview quoted this passage at me. Is that what it's saying? Is it saying that God doesn't like money because money's being used in the temple, that we shouldn't want money, make money, save money? I've also heard people talk about the sort of the new movement in church to use not only biblical ways, but also entertaining ways to draw people in, smoke and mirror and lights, and say, you know, this is exactly why we're so off base with Jesus, because Jesus doesn't want all that nonsense to bring in new people. He wants his house just to be a house of prayer. Is that true? So we're going to try and investigate today. I'm going to try and show you that there's maybe a small hint of those three theories, but Actually, no, two of them is not at all. Anyway, uh, I'm going to try and show you that finding the meaning of this passage can be found by actually looking at the specific Old Testament references in Isaiah and Jeremiah that Jesus is referencing. And I hope you're going to find that it's a very unique but very clear view of why Jesus is so riled up. What does it mean to be people of prayer? What does it mean to be a church that's on mission with God? As we watch Jesus' example, we're going to see when Jesus speaks up, when things are off mission... We're also going to see when Jesus will shut up. How do you know when to speak up and shut up? Wouldn't that be helpful to know when to do both of those? We're going to look at that through Jesus' example. And hopefully we'll be able to, as this whole chapter has done, show us how to align our mouth with God's kingdom, our treasures with God's kingdom, and our calendar with God's kingdom. And to know when we're out of sync with God's kingdom, how do we step in and speak up and make some changes? So let's begin with knowing when to speak up. The passage begins by saying, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. So again, is God against buying and selling stuff? Or is there something specific going on? Well, remember, the word then comes right out of the previous passage. We just quoted, The rocks will cry out because the spiritual leaders have become greedy and all about themselves, not my kingdom. It's part of the then. 
The other then, he's just said, because of that, God's going to withdraw his presence and the temple's going to be destroyed in the next 30 years because you did not know the day of your visitation. So he's already given sort of the context to that. And then he walks in, grabs the whip. He's done this twice now. Three years ago, before he began his ministry, he cleared out the temple. Now he is at the end of his ministry clearing out the temple. And he says, here he is speaking up, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So why is Jesus so riled up? It may seem counterintuitive, but I'm going to propose to you that God designed the temple and ultimately the tabernacle and now the church to be a place where unconvinced people, Gentile people, eunuch people, foreign people, people who don't believe the way we do, should be drawn to faith. That's what God's desire was. And he quotes this passage, and he's so angry with the whip because the church has become so inner-focused And so greedy and focused on itself, it's not reaching out and creating environments for outsiders, those who are unconvinced. Now, it may not seem uh, obvious at first, because you just see Jesus saying, house of prayer, den of thieves. But those come out of two passages, one in Isaiah and one in Jeremiah. When you read those contexts, it becomes very clear. So let's go to the first one, the house of prayer in Isaiah. Isaiah 56, verses 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs. Who keep my Sabbaths. So let's start with what's a eunuch. Well, two types of eunuchs. Those are those who have castrated themselves or been castrated for one of two reasons. One, to serve in the royal house. So if you want to serve in royalty, you have this prestigious position in different cultures. You also need to not be a threat of impregnating the queen or impregnating the, the princess. And so you would basically go through that process. You'd have the benefit of being a eunuch, but you also didn't have the ability to have children. And... If you remember from our study of Leviticus, a eunuch, anyone who um, had had that happen to them, couldn't come into sacred space. Sacred space, you couldn't come in if you had those kind of distortions to your body. So the implication might be, oh, God doesn't like eunuchs, and God doesn't like foreigners, and God doesn't like Gentiles. And here this passage is, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. To the eunuchs, those who are outside of the Gentile Faith, those who can't even come into sacred space, if those who want to know me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... They're drawn to know who I am. If they will keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, I want to trust the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if they will hold fast to my covenant, oh my goodness, this is the God who loves me. This is the God who will forgive me. This is the God who died for me. He'll redeem me. If foreigners, eunuchs, want to come into my fold, even to them, and this would be shocking to the Jewish people. God's about Gentiles too? Yeah. Even to them, I will give in my house, talking about the tabernacle and ultimately the temple, and within my walls, a place. I want the place I set up to be my temple and tabernacle, to be a place that eunuchs and foreigners could find faith. In fact, I'm going to give them a name better than that of the sons and daughters. Because remember, as a eunuch, you can't have sons and daughters. It's a great loss of that. No legacy, no generational impact. No one's going to carry your name on. And God says, man, I'm going to give you so much better than a family name. You're not just going to have sons and daughters. You're going to be known as my son or daughter. You're going to have the ultimate gift, the ultimate security. 
More than that, he says, this eternal, everlasting name that I'm going to give you shall not be cut off. Which is either God being funny or ironic, right? (laughs) Because here's a guy who's had some things cut off, and he's saying, listen, I know some things have been cut off from your life in order to serve in a royal place, or many also served in uh, idol worship. In idol worship, often some of the idols required you to do that, Artemis being one of them. And so whatever led you to this place, God is saying, despite what culture has happened, despite what decisions you've made, I want you to know, I want to give you something eternal that can never be cut off. And this is specifically talking about Gentiles, and he clarifies that in the next verse. Also... The sons of a foreigner, again, not talking about Jews here, we're talking about the foreigners, the Gentiles, those who didn't grow up in faith, if they will choose to join themselves to the Lord, to say, I want to learn how to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. If they want to learn how to love the name of the Lord, to serve the name of the Lord, then everyone, Jew or Gentile, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, holds fast to my covenant... Even them. And there's that even again. The audience said, what? I thought, I thought the church was just a churchy place for churchy people. I thought it was just a, 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 a Jewish place for Jewish people. No. It's for everyone. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. And I will, and here comes our quote from Jesus, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. And there, the Gentiles, the ones previously unconvinced, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. And here's the part Jesus left out. For all nations. So what's going on here is that Jesus is so angry that the temple has, number one, Not only is it not inviting foreigners in and people who are Gentiles or unconvinced about faith in, it has become the opposite. Instead of people who are on the inside using their resources to extend hospitality to those who are unconvinced to draw them in, they're instead exploiting the money from the outsiders to benefit themselves. The other quote Jesus references is the den of thieves. It's in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11. Same context, religious leaders have become arrogant, they have become all about themselves. Behold, you trust in lying words that that cannot profit. You will steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, let's talk about the house again, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Is that what God did? He set up the kingdom so you could just do abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves? So let me show you why Jesus is so riled up, now that you understand the context of those two verses he's quoted. If you're here for Easter, you'll know that I took us to an archaeological site where they found the house of Caiaphas the high priest. So this is uh, dated the first century. This is a very, very powerful priest, very, very wealthy from the mosaics on the floor that were found. And they believe this is the house of Caiaphas where Jesus was tried at 3 a.m. in a kangaroo court. It was illegal at the time. Well, when they dug down here, they found that one of the things that got the Sadducees wealthy is they, they engage in an incredibly corrupt system with the Roman government and the religious leaders to benefit themselves. They set up a monopoly and it was all about enriching themselves, not helping other people. In fact, when they dug down in this particular archaeological site, they actually found unjust weights amongst the ruins. So if you don't know what unjust weights are, 
Um, if you came to Jerusalem and you wanted to have a sacrifice and you wanted to buy a lamb, for example, so you could offer a sacrifice, the way the weighting system would work is they had a standardized weight. We'll call it two pounds. We'll use our terms. So they had a two-pound weight on one side of the scale. You would then put your gold on the other side until it weighed out two pounds. So one of the ways the Sadducees ripped off the people is their two-pound weight, they chucked it full of some additional minerals so it was actually two and a half pounds. So you would come to buy your sheep and say, hey, I want to buy a sheep. How much? Two pounds of gold. All right. They put their two-pound counterweight on it. You'd put in your two pounds and be like, uh, look like I need another handful. And so they would actually deflate your currency, so to speak, in order to get more money for you from the product they were offering. And we actually found evidence in the archaeological finds of these unjust weighting systems they did. And this was particularly difficult or particularly exploitive of those who came from a distance. See, if you were a Gentile traveling from a long period away to Passover, you weren't used to the system, right? If you were a local, you'd be like, oh, come on, come on, I just weighed this around the corner. But it was the foreigners who were being exploited the most. And many Gentiles had come for 100, 200 miles for Passover. And they had brought, as God instructed, their very best sheep. As they brought their very best in order to get into temple, they had a, a Pharisee uh, priest who was in on the cut. And they would have to examine your sheep. No matter what sheep you brought... Mm, let me see if this is blemish free. Mm, mm. Is that a blemish right there? That's not a blemish, that's a dirt. Oh no, it's a blemish. No matter what you brought in as a Gentile and as a foreigner, it didn't pass muster. Sorry, not qualified. How much does a sheep like this go for back home? hundred bucks. We'll give you 25. What? What are you going to do? You came to sacrifice. You're going to... Walk 300 miles back to Moab? So you're in this horrible circumstance now where you came. Everyone gets misqualified. Your sheep doesn't count. They then buy it at pennies on the dollar. And guess where they put it? Back in the pen. They're going to sell it to the next guy. Then they take the sheep, the Bethlehem sheep they had a monopoly with. They bring in one of their Bethlehem sheep and say, well, this one does qualify. And they charge you 500 bucks for it. Say, well, they're making money in all aspects of this. Uh, The unjust weights... The telling you that whatever you brought in didn't count and then selling your didn't count one to the next guy for five times the profit. This is why Jesus is so angry. And specifically, you know who's being affected the most? The Gentiles. Those who've traveled the farthest, who want to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is the first taste in their mouth that they're getting coming to temple? Greed, corruption, being exploited. And rather than the insiders of faith using their resources to make an environment where outsiders feel very welcome, they were instead create a system to exploit the outsiders to benefit themselves. And that's why Jesus is so angry in this case. Because of the way they're exploiting it. So one of the things I've loved about Horizon is when I came here 15 years ago, I was just struck by this idea that we could be a place who Bible nerds love to get together and dig deeply into the Bible. And I also love the idea that without compromising that depth and that theology, we could create environments for people who were unconvinced. And we could try and stay away from this tendency of the church to be all inner focused. And yet the other time, not be so outer focused that we neglect those who really want to dig deeper. It's hard to figure it out. Most churches do one or the other. 
was talking to my friend Scott about a month ago. I'm going to be interviewing him at the Exploring Service in a few weeks. And he said, God took him on a very unique path to find him. He said, I wasn't really into the God stuff. I was building a career. I had a very successful career. And it came to a, a juncture in my career where the company really wanted me to sort of buy in and become a partner. It was a chance to make a whole lot more money, but I wanted to sort of be a little bit less stressed. So I was doing very, very well, but that decision ultimately got me fired. And I did not see it coming at all. And as I started networking, not being really a person of faith, I met a guy at Horizon. And just called him up for networking. He had a few leads, but nothing much. A few weeks went by, and he's the one person in my job search who actually called me back. Nobody ever calls you back when you're networking. He said, hey, how are things going? So we met for lunch. We talked about job. We talked about life. And he started talking about faith. It was interesting to me. It sounded normal. We kept meeting. So in fact, uh, he and I met for 18 months. And in the 18 months, I started to study the Bible for the first time. I started to understand God for the first time and significance for the first time. He says, in that journey, I did end up finding a job. He's got a job that's, you know, even better than the job I had. And it's amazing how God had to take something away from me to get my attention so that something I didn't value at all, relationship with God, would be raised to the top of the stack before he entrusts me back with these things. He said, if it wasn't for somebody at Horizon who invited me in, built a relationship with me, create a context for me to process my questions and doubts, I would never find what really matters, a relationship with God. And to be able to invite to the exploring service and to have those kind of questions answered. He said, and then... I started coming to the equipping service. He actually comes every Saturday, sometimes it's 850 service. He's out of town this weekend and sits here because he loves deep, deep, deep Bible study. But that was his journey over the last four or five years. And I love the fact that what we're trying to do as a church is the Great Commission. In fact, we had a guest speaker in last week, uh, Kathy Cook, at our 10-11-10 service, who's an educational expert on the eight smarts. Just a fantastic talk. And when she came in, She's looking at the building and looking at our, our website. She's like, I've never seen a church who's trying to do evangelism and discipleship the way you're doing it. We just had these great conversations. She's like, is there any way I can, you know, uh, keep up with you guys? And I said, well, actually, yeah, one of the new tools we're doing to do that is we're putting in video services. And she's like, well, tell me about that. And we actually have video equipment. Gonna be, you'll start seeing it being installed in the next couple of months as we're getting uh, closer to that. And she's like, I really like to watch your services. And she was actually back in the back row at 850 last week with her hands raised. She was a really, really tall lady and just enjoying the Bible study. And so I told her, you know, I know many of you have asked too. You know, we're going to be putting video equipment in the next couple of months. So this can be another tool. You can forward a message. Hey, this message on depression helped me. Hope it'll help you. Hey, this message on, on really blinders in my life like last week. I think I got some blinders. Maybe it'll help you. And then we're hoping to be able to go to uh, online services. You'll be able to see previous messages uh, coming up here in the next, probably the summer. And then we're going to live stream. So if you're at a different place, you can actually watch our services live. And just this week's pretty exciting because we're actually just got the demos for the app that we're developing. And so you're going to be able to watch the services, pass on the services, connect service with an app. If all those pieces go into place the way we're thinking, then we're going to be able to offer our additional equipping services um, that the video equipment allows us to do starting as early as uh, the fall. So... Again, very, very exciting to see what God is doing, to see apps coming out and things coming out and the fundraising that went on for that. And that's really what we're trying to do is what Jesus talked about. Insiders of faith take their resources and use it to create environments for outsiders. Right? If those have been part of that, thank you. If those are not part of it yet, still plenty of opportunities with an app being developed and things to be part of what God's doing here. 
But we want to know when to speak up. And we speak up when things are off vision. And Jesus spoke up, even pulled a whip out, when the church or the temple got off vision and became about itself, not about God and not about others. But the second part of the passage speaks to when Jesus would shut up. And he's in a really unique situation here. He was teaching daily in the temple. So imagine he's speaking in the temple. There's a whole bunch of people gathered around. And all of a sudden the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. So these are not people coming to ask Bible questions because they care. They're trying to entrap him. They're trying to destroy him. This is going to be helpful because there's going to be people in your life who come and they do not have good motives. And there is no ethical obligation to give information to people who are trying to destroy you. Jesus knows that. He says, do not cast your pearl before swine. Jesus also knows the proverb that says, do not rebuke a fool according to his folly or he'll hate you for it. And here we see people trying to destroy him and Jesus does not answer their question. In fact, he turns the tables on them. They were unable to do anything. Why, why couldn't they do anything to destroy him? Because all the people liked him and were listening to Jesus teach. As he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes did what? Well, they came together with the elders and they confronted him. They're going to give him a tough question, make him look like a fool, see if they can entrap him like they've done many times before. And they spoke to him saying, tell us! By what authority are you doing these things? We'll trick him into saying that he's doing it by the authority of God and claiming to be God and then we can accuse him of blasphemy. Well, Jesus has said this plenty of times. Or, who is he who gave you this authority? Again, Jesus has answered this a thousand times. Look at any time Jesus speaks. My Father sent me. My will is to do the will of my Father. Everyone the Father gave me, I will do the will that I will raise them up on the last day. Let me tell you about my Father. Not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus answered this many, many times. So Jesus knows these are not people genuinely asking questions. These are people trying to entrap him. But he turns to them and says, tell you what, I will answer your question if you answer me my question. And he turns the mirror back on them. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now, a little background on John the Baptist. The people love John the Baptist. Many of them were baptized by John the Baptist. They believe he's a prophet from God. He came with the authority, but the problem was when John the Baptist came with the authority and all the things he was doing, he also said that Jesus, whoa, behold, the Lamb of God. So the people loved John, and John loved Jesus. So, Pharisees, tell me about John. What authority did he do it? Did it come from God, or did he just make the stuff up himself? And they suddenly huddle up. So they reason among themselves. If we say from heaven, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him if it came from God? Oh, yeah, that's not going to work. But if we say it came from men, all the people are going to stone us because they persuade that John was a prophet. He's put us in the same predicament we want to put him in. So huddle up. Hike, break. One of them gets uh, put as a spokesman. So they, uh, they answered... We plead the fifth. That's the Greek, actually, in this. The Greek here is, I plead the fifth. Here's how it says it. They answered and they said, I don't know. We don't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, huh. Then I guess I don't know the answer to your question either. I don't know by which authority I do these things. 
And what I love about this idea is there are times to speak up and there are times to shut up. And there is no moral obligation to tell people who are trying to destroy you information that they're going to load up into a gun and shoot you with. And maybe you grew up in a family like that. Or you know the Bible talks about owning your part, asking for forgiveness for your part. But you grew up in a family that no one did that. They just screamed at each other and accused each other of things. And every once in a while somebody would say, you're right, I did that, I'm sorry. And, and for a moment it felt like, oh wow, that's kind of healthy. But it quickly got snuffed out because the other person took that apology, loaded it up into a weapon, and shot them for the next two decades. You remember the time you said you did this? <laughs> And you learn, consciously or unconsciously, don't apologize for anything ever in a family. Because all that does is give the other person uh, the chance to, to drag you through the mud for two decades and shoot you with bullets. Right? You learn to be silent because of the dysfunction. Remember my last church, I was uh, working with a senior pastor and we just got to a place we didn't agree on some things. And so we were trying to work stuff, that stuff out. And so I thought it was just a cordial relationship of, hey, here's some misunderstandings I have, misunderstandings you have, here's some things we're going through. But as we would talk, I'd find out that, like, after every conversation, some elder would call me up and, I heard you, I heard you. I'm like, oh, my goodness. I thought we were trying to work things out together. I didn't realize he's just collecting bullets of things that I'm owning so I can get shot. I thought, oh, I need to, I need to learn to be silent. Learn not to give information to people who are trying to destroy me. There's a time to be silent. It's actually one of the things that ultimately led me to Horizon was that last conversation where I'm like, oh, I'm going to stop handling bullets. And I remember one of the things I was committed to is I wanted to come to a place that the culture of the church was the same when you attended the church and when you worked at the church. And sadly, that's not always the same. What we pretend to be is not what we're living out. And I just felt like it was so important that we were living the life that we're inviting people into. That's one of the things I'm just so proud of what God's done at our church is that I'm certainly not a perfect place. But that we can with authenticity say that we as a staff, we as a team of volunteers are living the life that we're inviting other people into. That means learning the wisdom sometimes, knowing when to speak and sometimes knowing when to be quiet. So that's why Jesus uses this little quote about his father's house being a house of prayer. Because God designed his house to be a place where people who are not convinced would be drawn to faith. But obviously this is also about prayer. God wants his house to be a place where both convinced and unconvinced people don't just play church, but they love God more. They learn how to pray and commune with their heavenly father more. We had a staff meeting last week and just powerful stories. We had a consultant came in a few months ago into our children's program and just saw the ways in which we have junior high and high school students actually teaching our children's program. And because they're so much cooler than adults, the children are listening and seeing the Bible come alive. As we've been critiquing the different curriculums out there who don't seem to teach the Bible really well, we've continued to build our own curriculum and make our own curriculum because we want students and children to come out of our children's program and know the Bible. Like know not just five stories, but know 500 stories. And not just think of them as stories, but know them as, as actual accounts in history. And, and the people who are watching, the creative way that we're doing that, has just been so encouraging. Or even our junior high and high school program, we've got several band members now being mentoring. We're mentoring other band members and starting to hang out with each other and doing music in our different ministries. And the band that's uh, working in our high school program is also doing some music in our children's program. Just need to see the church being the church. 
people serving God and loving God and knowing God. I talked to a guy uh, last week who talked about uh, his first uh, Bible study at Horizon. And somebody said, well, t- what's a Bible study like at Horizon? You know, well, these deep drill Bible studies. He said, well, it's kind of like Indiana Jones meets the best history teacher you've ever had meets Bible quiz. I'm like, well, that's what we're trying to do at the equipping service. Indiana Jones meets best history class you've ever had meets Bible quiz, but not just so we can answer Bible trivia questions, but so we can love God. Know how to commune with, pray with, talk with God. So what are our two applications? Well, number one, you've got to use the right, the right tool for a fool. You've got to know when to show it, shut up. You've got to know how to set boundaries. People are trying to manipulate you. That could be your kids. It could be your spouse. It could be a partner. How do we set healthy boundaries and make sure that when we're interacting, there's times of disagreeing, having heated disagreement. We're doing that context of two people who are mutually trying to, or, or two divisions that are mutually trying to make things better, not just trying to collect bullets after you. And remember those two proverbs. Those are important ones. Number one, uh, do not cast your pearl before swine. If somebody's going to stomp all over your advice, why are you giving it? And do not rebuke a fool according to his folly. Which is so weird for the Bible to say that. Because you'd think, who needs a rebuke? A fool. So why would the Bible tell you not to rebuke a fool but to stay silent? And here's why. When you bring light into the life of a fool, the fool does not want to change their life. So who's the problem? You for bringing the light. So do not rebuke a fool according to his folly or he will hate you for it. Just stay silent. The wise man, on the other hand, you rebuke a wise man, he's wiser still. Why? Because when you bring light to the life of a wise man, he adjusts his life to the light. And he thanks you for it. And there's a fool in all of us, and there's a wise man in all of us. So how do we increasingly know how to wisely navigate when to speak and when to listen? then how do we also know how to look at our own brokenness? How do we not be the Pharisees who think we're so right and think we're so indignant and we're so off course to God's mission and God's vision? I think our second application, remember this little passage we've studied today is in the context of a whole passage about using your resources and your calendar and your time to align with God's kingdom. So I think the other application here is to do the opposite of what they were doing at temple. At temple, they were using outsiders' resources to enhance themselves. Instead, how can we put our money where God's mouth is? How do we use our resources to bless outsiders? How do we use our resources to prioritize the things that matter in the kingdom of God? So let's go back to that main idea. What does it mean for God's house to be a house of prayer? So my wife and I just got back from our 25-year anniversary, and we just had a fantastic time and enjoyed it. Many of you were on Facebook and told me how much you enjoyed it. One of the things while I was in Hawaii that struck me is I started doing some reading. And one of the reading I did was on the symptoms of PTSD. And that they said uh, parents of special needs children often have the same symptoms of PTSD as those in the military. Which seems almost sacrilegious to put PTSD next to a civilian. But as I was reading uh, the symptoms of hypervigilance, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what I struggle with. It's not just struggle, this is exactly what I'm stuck in. As I came back, I was talking with a friend of mine. I'm like, I, I'm having these panic attacks, 
just really to all the things I'm managing. And Beth and I have a system now that is sustainable. It is truly sustainable. It's, it's a good system. But my, my heart has not caught up and my, my brain has not caught up from just all the things having had to do for the last 10 years and last year. And so I'm just having these panic attacks. So my friend, a uh, counselor friend of mine, he said, well, number one, the only thing that's going to help with this is deep, soulful prayer. That you've got to get into a deeper level of prayer, not just three things, God, I need this stuff and help me and bless me. You've got to get to the soulful. What are the idols in your life that are causing this? What are the circumstances? It sounds like you've got the support system down. But what are the things broken in you and taking thoughts captive? And, and so he gave me just a lot of great advice about how to use prayer. Because what time is money, right? So to align my, my time to God's kingdom. Sometimes that's spending money on counselors so you can align your heart to God's kingdom. And so I actually, I'm meeting with a PTSD counselor here in a few weeks to see if they can give me some help on how to get my mind and my heart aligned to God's kingdom. And I'm finding myself, even during the day, as these sort of panic attacks come up, just reminding myself prayer, worship, I am God's temple. How can I be a place of prayer? So as a temple of God's spirit, I'm a place of productivity. Yes, I am. You want to get something done, you hand it to me. I'll get it done. But I'm not sure this temple of the Holy Spirit is always a place of prayer and communion with God and of rest. And part of that's circumstantial. It's hard to rest when you have to be hypervigilant. But there's a lot within my control. And so what God is working on me, and maybe he's working on you, is how does horizon become a place of prayer? And how do we, through the Bible teaching, how do we, through our communion and our worship, how do we become people of prayer? Not just sort of superficial prayers. Deep prayers that unlock snares, maybe generational snares. How do we become people of prayer that unlock lies from things that we're good at that actually have become idols that blessed you on the way up and they'll curse you on the way down? So that's my prayer for us. Is that you, as you pursue God's best for you, as you look for God's kingdom in your life, that you say, God, how do I align my heart to your will. How do I put my money where your my, 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 my money where your mouth is? How do I align myself to make the things you say are important to me? Rest, worship, caring about the outsider, evangelism. How do I put the resources in place to honor you? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the good work you're doing in me. It's not particularly uh, comfortable. It's not particularly the way I'd want to learn it. But I thank you, Father, that you, uh, you want each one of us to be a partaker of your holiness. And being a partaker of your holiness um, means we need to be dependent. And we thank you that in our dependence upon you, we get access to your kingdom. And Father, we thank you for this just great passage by Jesus and a reminder of how we can stay focused on what you've called us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Thanks for being here today.